The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, all right. Welcome. Disability Law Show. We're back at it. So good to have you along. My good pal Tamar Agopian is here, going to be filling your head with the knowledge you need to know. Why? Because it's a big topic. There's a lot to discuss, and you can always be educated more and more every week. So we're going to get right to that. In the meantime, you want to write these numbers down, this contact information for Tamar and her very capable and excellent team, one 821 5900 That's the number. Email is help at disability rights. .ca. Tomorrow we got lots to get through. We've got a pile of emails. We want to start chipping away at it. But first, you got something you want to uh, discuss off the top. How? What do you got? Absolutely. Look, it's been such a difficult week or two, John, with yeah. so much going on in the world. A uh, lot of traumatic events, uh, you know, down south Agreed. in the border. You've got tornadoes and hail and, you know, power outages. And, I, you know, it's just been, you know, one devastation after another. Uh, and of course, the province is gripped with, um, you know, an onset of, of an election coming up as well and right. lots of hot topics, including, you know, mental health and how do we get greater access for mental health treatment and this sort of thing. I, you know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on, you know, the news bites, uh, but I want to really pull it in with uh, something that actually came up on one of my matters recently, and it is Uh, somewhat related to our topics of what's happening in the world, and that's post-traumatic stress disorder. It is a disorder, John, that is recognized, uh, you know, across North America as a recognized disability and certainly a mental health illness. For those who may not be as familiar with mental health illnesses, there's actually a manual, um, and there's different iterations of this manual, but the manual itself is called the DSM-5. That's the version we're on right now. And it will categorize mental health conditions and will set out the requirements uh, for psychologists and psychiatrists to diagnose individuals with certain types of mental health conditions. And so with post-traumatic stress disorder, as the, the name or word would describe, it is tied quite closely through witnessing trauma and experiencing depression and other symptoms related to the trauma and therefore leading to a diagnosis diagnosis of PTSD. That's the the uh, acronym for it. Right. But recently, recently, I want to say in the last handful of years or so, the symptoms have expanded. The, the criteria for the symptoms that qualify for PTSD, John, have actually been expanded to create a, a, a level where it includes stressors as well. So it's not just trauma, it's additional stressors. And we talk about this because you can understand and imagine an individual experiencing a traumatic event and then having re-triggering stressors or stressors that compound the actual witnessing of the traumatic event, leading someone to be disabled and prevented from working as a result of this type of a diagnosis or a collection of symptoms. But what's most relevant to disability law, John, is the fact that the courts have recognized that actually the label is not all that important. I think the label certainly is important for focused treatment. I think those who may have witnessed trauma or experiencing trauma should most certainly absolutely access you know, medical treatment and perhaps pursue such a diagnosis so they get appropriate treatment for that. But as it relates to disability benefits, it actually doesn't really matter. 
it's really, it comes down, John, to the symptoms. And, and the, the Supreme Court, our highest court, has even commented on the legal inquiry on whether or not somebody meets the test of total disability in a disability policy is related to the symptoms they are experiencing and whether that's consistent or inconsistent with their ability to work full stop so this came up because i have i'm dealing with a claim right now where the insurer actually got quite hot and bothered around the diagnosis of ptsd they had of course as they do a medical consultant review the claim and disagree with the ptsd diagnosis and you know made some comments and uncolorful comments and anyway it doesn't really even matter the point being that the insurance company relied upon their internal paper review from this psychologist taking issue with the ptsd diagnosis and concluding wrongly might i might i add that this individual was capable of working and those two things don't jive at all whatsoever as it relates to whether it's ptsd or not the focus is always the symptoms and the additional log on the fire is the fact that this individual actually had the support of not only her own family doctor but her own psychologist who, by the way, was a specialist in PTSD diagnosing and confirming the fact that the conditions and symptoms that she had were preventing her from working. But the insurance company ignored all of that, John, and had a psychologist who was simply wrong on the criteria and analysis of a PTSD claim because we don't actually see it all that much, but certainly by virtue of the fact that there's an acknowledgement that the criteria changes Not all of the in-house insurance doctors and and psychologists that are advising the insurers are necessarily up to speed. And this issue really was the forefront of what the insurance company was relying upon in unfairly declining, you know, this individual's claim. So look, you know, we're in the midst of a legal claim. We're going to deal with that situation. But I thought it was an important topic to start off our show because there's just so much happening in the world right now. And, you know, just an acknowledgement that these things do require treatment they do require some eyes on it and you know there's a lot of literature even if you just do a simple google review on getting further information on um, you know symptoms and criteria related to trauma related events and stressful events that you may witness and have reactions to that ultimately may prevent you from actually doing your your occupational duties have you noticed since, you know, off the top, you mentioned maybe not, uh, you know, a widened definition, but widened language, including words like stressor, et cetera. Have you noticed because of that and it's increasing, you're getting a lot more pushback from insurance companies, resistance even? Absolutely. Because oh. for whatever reason, stress in and of itself, yes, it's subjective, uh, but all of these claims are inherently subjective, John. Right. But it's also dismissive, right? There's a dismissive nature of, well, we all have stress, right? And this inclination by adjusters to sort of dismiss the fact that stress in and of itself or a stressor, in other words, things that are happening in your life and your world that may be impacting your function are in fact significant enough to impact your ability to work or not work. And look, the the needle gets moved a little bit with insurers. I think generally as the world becomes much more aware of mental health conditions and how that can impact an individual certainly helps. But at the end of the day, you've got an adjuster working for an insurance company who will collect premiums and look for opportunities to decline claims. And in the situation that I described, they may even rely upon 
a, a medical uh, so-called expert or someone in their medical field that they pay, by the way, to provide them with an opinion who might not be right. Like that's, I think, the, the concern that I have is that who are the insurers and adjusters using to advise them and educate them as to the latest and greatest on mental health conditions and symptoms and really what you know needs to happen for an individual to get to a point where they can actually work. And so th- this idea of a stressor and a stressful, stressful element, you know, we see that even the interactions that individuals can have with the insurance company in and of itself can trigger a mental health reaction, John. I've seen that a lot. And we've seen courts even acknowledge that that can warrant damages. So I think that the insurance adjusters, look, I don't know what they need to do to improve their adjudications on mental health conditions. But generally speaking, I think there needs to be an acceptance that they're real, that if they are documented and supported by a doctor that certainly require treatment, that that needs to be accepted for face value because these are not conditions that you're going to be able to do a test for. And by the way, John, they still look for tests, right? They'll say yeah. to claimants, look, you need to go do some kind of psychiatric test or you know, some questionnaire, these kinds of things. Sure, that may give you a point in time, but it certainly doesn't give you the full picture what a, a, perhaps a doctor could do or say or what the own individual is perhaps communicating to the insurance company about look, today I was re-triggered because of this particular issue or I saw something on television or, you know, I'm dealing with another family member's health issues. All of these things together can, by all means, create an environment for someone who's already compromised from a health perspective and amplify and exacerbate those conditions to prevent them from from returning back to their jobs. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're going to get that whole, uh, you're going to get pushed back. You're going to get that, you know, for all intents and purposes, I ah, just walk it off. It's a bit of stress. Everybody has it. I can see that you have your work cut out for you, but it's recognized and it's, it's a, it's a valid thing. So, you know, to your success tomorrow, defending people that come to you with that, it is a real thing. And, and, and luckily it's been recognized more and more as of late. And that'll, um, that'll get better for sure. I want to start in on a, an email here from Louie. We just, uh, we just got, we'll start in on this and probably pick it up after the break. We got a couple minutes here, but let me, uh, let me get into this. Let's get your thoughts about this. Louise says, uh, hey, Tamar, I'm currently uh, awaiting surgery for my wrist that will hopefully allow me to work again. In the meantime, my request for LTD benefits was surprisingly denied. I've been told to file an appeal with my insurer. Is that the best route to take right now? I heard oh, the chuckle. I heard it. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. No, don't appeal. Don't appeal. But yeah. but let's talk, you know, maybe we pick up the appeal issue in a bit, but I want to mm-hmm. talk more imminently about what Louis is describing, which is the need for surgery that will hopefully on the outside of that, after a period of recovery, allow him to work. Now, I don't have a lot of information. In fact, I don't have any information about the job that he's doing, but I got to think with the wrist injury, John, you know, that may prevent you from doing even the most basic sedentary type jobs like computer work and answering phones. uh, And most certainly, you know, more physical type roles that we can think about even in a retail setting or perhaps a factory or warehouse type setting. So look, I think that the difficulty that Louis faces is something that's existed, but for a while, but really is compounded by virtue of of what's happening in the province and the pandemic, which is that there is a massive, massive backlog in getting individuals into doing um, more routine type surgeries and procedures. And it's by no fault of anyone. It's just the reality of the situation that we're in. 
And why I say this has been a problem for some time, at least from an insurance company perspective, is because the insurers are impatient. <laughs> they don't want to wait, John, for yeah. Louis to get his surgery in mm-hmm. six, eight, nine, ten months. Because guess what? If they wait all that time, they've got to release that monthly benefit every single month and right. acknowledge that he's totally disabled right now. So the inclination absolutely is to perhaps decline the claim and see, you know, maybe he forces himself back to work while he awaits surgery. Uh, you know, perhaps he doesn't pursue his rights further. Uh, but let's let's pick up that pursuing of rights further after our break. We'll talk a little bit more about appeals and that. Yeah, we'll deal with that and get to that appeal part as well. Uh, Louis, thank you so much for standby for that. In the meantime, as we go to break here, I'll give you the number to reach out yourself, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Hey, welcome back. Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian is here. You'll want to reach out to Tamara and her uh, her amazing team at the firm anytime. Have a chat. It'll cost you nothing just to pick up a phone and say hi and get some answers. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Tomorrow we are in the middle. At least we cracked open uh, Louis' uh, email here, waiting for surgery. Bad wrist in the meantime has been asked to uh, appeal with his insurer. This one's, it's not a difficult answer, but it's one we like to talk about all the time because it's a very widespread solution, or at least a solution that the think uh, the insurance companies will throw at you, right? What do you say? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely, John. So they'll send a letter out saying, look, you know, they might call you and sell, say, we're going to decline your claim. Uh, and then they'll send a letter out. And that letter is sometimes two or three pages. And after they've told you why they think you're not disabled, uh, perhaps in, in some careful language, Sometimes it's a one-liner, but either way, at the back end of that letter, they will more certainly say, but if you disagree with our decision, you by all means, you can appeal the decision and you can appeal by providing us with further medical information. And by the way, do this in 30 days or 60 days or some, some kind of nonsense deadline. Um, I want to just get it out there. (laughs) There's nothing in your policy that talks about appeals. Uh, You know, you will not find that anywhere. It's not written down. This is a process that insurance companies have conceived of and the timelines around it and the requirements around it, John, are it's a moving target. In other words, just because you provide them with the two or three pieces of medical that they might be seeking, just because you provide them with that information within the timeline that they've given in your letter, there's zero obligation on the insurance company to change their mind. There is zero obligation on the insurance company to respond to you in a certain period of time even though they've demanded something from you within a certain period of time. This is something that I think insurance companies are doing for their regulators. I don't even really know. But at the end of the day, the ultimate result is that it keeps individuals like Louie in the process of the insurance company. It almost curtails the ability or the desire to pursue a legal claim because they figure, okay, you know what? I'm going to try this appeal process because that's what they've said they're going to do. And they're going to give me a fair shake. But the reality of the situation is that's often not the case. You've probably, if you're Louis, probably have provided all the medical information that you've got available. You've probably put it out there to the insurance company. Look, I've got a disabling wrist issue and I simply cannot work until I get surgery. And I don't know when that surgery is going to happen. It could be in a year, could be successful. Maybe it's not either way. 
that information is available to the individual that you've been dealing with at the insurance company, that claims adjuster. Right. And usually when you appeal, it's that same person, John, that's going to be looking at any additional information or the same information. And what you're asking them to do is come to a different conclusion. It's human nature, John, that when someone has made a decision, they're going to stick to that decision. So this is not something that you're going to necessarily get a fair shake. I think in in Louis' situation, you've got the added element of time and the insurance company is probably looking at the time frame and thinking, you know, maybe this is not something we want to deal with because it's going to be a long protracted claim or delay and we're going to have to pay these benefits out month over month. Perhaps they're going to, you know, have to offer him some further rehabilitation. Who knows the situation because we don't have enough background. But certainly I can tell you that the inclination from the insurance company is to say no and then no again, and then you're just simply running down the clock to actually right. pursue your rights by way of a legal claim, right? You've only got two years to do that from the moment that you get that first denial letter, John. And so think about the appeal process. What most people don't realize is that there's actually usually three levels of it. So you go through three levels of it. Think about that. You've got two or three months every time, potentially more uh, every time you're appealing. Where are you at now? The time has now run down the clock. You're still dealing with your health issues. You have no financial support and you're just wasting that time, that valuable time that someone like myself or someone on our team could absolutely assist you in moving that needle. In our experience, the most efficient way to assert your rights against the insurance company is to bring a legal claim because what ends up happening is that it it removes the adjuster out of the equation. It now gets assigned to someone internally at the insurance company typically an in-house lawyer and someone dedicated like an elevated adjuster i would say a senior person who's going to look at the same risks and exposures and the things that i talk about on the show and my colleagues talk about on these shows about look what is this going to do in terms of optics did we give louis a fair a louis a fair shake you know you know what are the other issues that we need to look at what's our full exposure and that legal claim allows us the most efficient route to get the insurance company to come to the table and talk about settlement. That is the key. The financial compensation is the key, John, because you can see if people have gone through appeal or two or three, by the time they come to us, it could be months and months down the road. Yeah, sure. And you know what are they doing financially and still having to deal with therapy costs and these other things. So please don't delay. If there's a basis you know, that your doctors are saying, look, you cannot work, and that you require treatment, but that you can't access this treatment for reasons outside completely of your own control, don't hesitate because you still have the right to the disability benefit if you cannot work today, presently, right now. If that's the situation for Louis and that seems to be the case, then he is entitled to disability benefits. And you know, we always, you know, you mentioned starting a legal claim and foregoing this this appeal silliness. And and I always mention this. And when you mention that, is the, the the positive and good sidebar to that entire thing is once that legal claim is is started, from your client contacts you says, okay, tomorrow let's go forward with this. Now the the contact, the harassment, the headaches cease with the insurance company because they have to bypass your client and go right to you for all contact, which is 50% of your recovery in some cases, as far as the mental note is concerned, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we take that stress away from people. Our clients can really just focus on their health. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. Even when we do that, though, John, some adjusters still feel the need that they need to contact our clients. 
And so you can, I had that happen recently and you can only imagine my frame of mind when I thought, hang on, I've written you a letter. I've told mm-hmm. you not to contact my client. I'm going to, you know, be commencing the legal claim. Please provide me your full claims file, by the way. Uh, the audacity of some of these adjusters to continue to communicate with the claimant is just unbelievable to me. But again, you know, these are poor checks and balances. This is the issue with these insurance companies is that there isn't over overarching guidance being given to these adjusters on how to deal with these kinds of situations. And there's poor decision making going on. And unfortunately, that translates into the decisions that they make on these claims. And so by all means, it should be taken away from these suggestors in terms of decision making, because then we can have as lawyer to lawyer reasonable discussions around the issues, what the law says about situations like this, and frankly, what the contract, the policy says, because that's really what it comes down to. The policy says if you've got a sickness or an illness that prevents you from working, you are entitled to disability benefits. Yeah. Full stop. Want to uh, want to ask you about this, and I think this is also an interesting topic as we move on here. You talk about resolving legal claims through what's called a mediation. A lot of people know the word; they may be familiar with it. But uh, what's that process like? Do all legal claims get settled in mediation? We'll talk about that afterwards as well. And how Absolutely. do you go through it? Yeah, for sure. So, what's a mediation? I describe a mediation as a non-binding settlement meeting. So, in other words, uh, you know, my client and I will attend. The insurance company's lawyer and their dedicated, um, you know, claims person will attend the mediation, and then you've got a mediator who is a, you know, neutral who will facilitate discussions around settlement, and it's all without prejudice and it's all confidential. So, what does all that mean? It means it allows the parties to speak directly to one another in a forum where. Nothing that's said or done can be disclosed outside of the mediation. In other words, if you've got an ongoing legal claim and you're not able to settle your claim, for example, at mediation, what is said and done and the positions that are taken and the issues that are discussed through mediation are not going to see the light of day in court before a judge. And so the idea is, John, that it promotes open dialogue and frankly, a discussion around compromise. So it makes a lot of sense to have this process fairly early on for for both sides. I find that there's a lot of receptiveness, both from my client's perspective and the insurance companies to have these mediations early because at the end of the day, the longer these legal claims go, the more months that may be payable to my client for a disability benefit. Because think about that. They deny a claim and another month goes by, there's a month of benefits that are owing. Another month goes by, there's another month of benefits that are owing. And so certainly when I'm having these discussions on behalf of my clients, that's really what we're looking at is what is payable into the past? What's potentially payable into the future? This individual is not likely to return to work. And then we essentially come to a settlement with some terms and a buyout of the disability policy for a period of time. That's usually the process with mediation. What we're doing, though, post-COVID is, John, we're trying to do these mostly virtually. So, you know, back in the day, we would sort of all jag ourselves down to a boardroom somewhere and, you know, and uh, negotiate for half a day a day and so on. Now, because of the COVID protocols, most have insurers have been receptive to doing this virtually. So we'll use different types of platforms, Zoom being one of them, for example, And so the benefit being is that my client is in the comfort of their own home or whatever space they're in to mediate, which I found to be really, really helpful. 
And they're not needing to be on so much on as they would have been had they been in a, a big setting like a boardroom and so on, like I previously described. And so this has been a really, really good process because there's some comfort there. Uh, I spend a lot of time with my clients preparing them for the mediation process. And then there's an expectation that we're going to be involved in the you know back and forth negotiations through the mediation for some hours, perhaps a full day. And the end result being hopefully that we arrive at some terms and a resolution for our clients. What's great about it is that you've typically got mediators. I'm talking about mediators for a minute. You've typically got mediators who are either former disability lawyers or have you know worked in settings uh, on you know alternative dispute resolution, and they're experts at this. And I think that that is really really helpful when you've got such different views from the insurance company and ourselves and our clients about whether or not someone is totally disabled and how long that disability may be going on for. And so with these these mediators, they will you know, allow us to broach discussions, they understand the issues and really can put both parties at ease to get those negotiations going and hopefully reach a compromise at the end of the day that will resolve the legal claim. And then I say to my clients, you're done. Like if we we are able to get a full buyout of the disability policy on terms and quantum that makes sense, then you don't have to deal with the insurer any further. And you are at liberty then to completely focus on your health and uh, see, you know, see where the future lies and and hopefully get some further treatment and you know pay off debts and all the other things that you you've probably needed to do to get to that point of mediation. So really, really helpful process. Now, I know you've worked on both sides of the of the table as far as working for the big bad insurance companies, and now you're doing, the, of course, the the good work for San Fierro Market. If if you could just off the top of your head, percentage of cases that luckily and gladly uh, get resolved in mediation without having to go to court, what would you say that would be a very high percentage? Extremely high. Like I want to wow. say, like ninety nine percent, John. Come it on. Is, yeah, it, it is an oh. excellent, excellent process that's available. Uh, in certain jurisdictions in the province, it's also mandatory. So right. yep. you must come and and have this discussion for resolution. But it has been a very, very effective way to resolve these disputes um, for all the reasons that I discussed, right? So it allows direct communication with the parties. Uh, it allows a, a process that's not so combative because you don't have a judge there. there. There's nobody making a ruling. There's no one making a decision that you are right or you are right. It's simply a question of compromise. And and it, we can get in the door fairly early. That's the key, especially since we've been able to do it on these sort of virtual platforms. It's amazing stuff. So reach out any time for more information on what we've discussed or what we're going to in the next couple, uh, next few minutes. Anyways, we continue on as we get to a break here. I'm going to give you the uh, the number to reach out to Tamar and her team, one 855 help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. And this is the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show. Quick break there. Good to be back at it. Tamara Gopian is who you want to reach out to anytime. She's phenomenal. She's worked on both sides of the uh, of the insurance business and the uh, legal business for the firm. So you want to uh, you want to reach out to her and have that discussion. 
Knowledge, 1-855-821-5900. That's what she offers and so much more. Have that conversation. You want to reach out by email? You can do that. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And by the way, there's another website that's free and anonymous. It was crafted just so you can ask questions anonymously. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Searchable database. Kind of cool. You can see if your question or one similar has been asked in the past and simply use that as a guide. If not, Leave your question there. We were talking about, uh, you know, resolving legal claims through mediation, how much we love it. Uh, Tamar, you said, you know, 95 plus percentage get resolved in mediation. Luckily, it's good for all parties. It is. Do they all settle the mediation? A lot of them do. What are the ways might that legal claim get resolved, though? Yeah, that's a really good question, John, because we do talk a lot about mediation because the process is so successful and, you know, beneficial to our parties. You know, it's a really good way uh, to resolve claims. But, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, we do get that question from a lot of clients. Look, but what if it doesn't settle at mediation? Is it, you know, could it, do we need a mediation? You know, what, what could we do with a claim like this? So, look, let me sort of pull back the curtain and just talk a little bit about what we do as a team of lawyers. One of the things that's extremely helpful is, as you said at the top, John, you know, some of us have worked for insurers. You know, certainly we are well known to the insurers. We've got relationships with these other lawyers. We've dealt with them all the time. They know us and we know them. And I got to say that sometimes that can be an extreme advantage to our claimants and our clients. And I'll tell you why. Not just reputation, which of course is very, very important, but it's also the opportunity to pick up the phone because I've worked with that lawyer before or I have had a relationship with them in the past, for example, and say to them, look, this is one that I think we don't need a mediation for. Let's try and resolve this directly and here's why. And we can have a meaningful discussion, a reasonable one because they know me and I know them. And so that is actually a really effective way that we advocate for our clients and resolve claims outside of the mediation setting. Now, I say to my clients, I can't promise you that that opportunity will exist on every claim. Certainly, there are certain claims where the insurance company will want to do uh, greater vetting. Uh, There are certain ones, for example, where an insurance company has asked for my client to be assessed, for example, by an expert, or perhaps they want to question my client and do what's called an examination for discovery, which is a fairly routine process in litigation. Not so much in disability, but that certainly is one process. And so what is a discovery, John? That's when an individual is sworn under oath to tell the truth. There's still no judge, but there is a court reporter that's sort of typing up all the questions and answers that are asked in case the claim were to go to trial. And that is an opportunity for both sides to ask questions of each other directly about the issues of the legal claim. So in a context like that, my client would be asked, look, you know, what is the nature of your disability? You know, how is it persisting? What are the symptoms? This sort of thing. And the interesting part about uh, examinations for discovery, at least in my experience, is that sometimes just by virtue of that process alone is a jumping off point for further discussion for resolution. So I say to my clients, look, I, you know, I'm not much troubled by going through that process, if it's going to offer us a further opportunity to be face-to-face with the insurance people, you give your evidence, I'm not concerned about it whatsoever, we'll prepare for that, uh, and then we'll use this as an opportunity to broach further discussions and resolution. So we don't always need a mediation to settle. We can do it directly with the lawyers. We can do it at other settings. And then, of course, in the very, very rare instance, you have claims that go all the way to trial. 
But even then, John, you will have other court proceedings that will happen before you even see the inside of a courtroom. And the one important one is called a pretrial. We don't talk about that a lot, actually, on our shows, because a lot of the time we've had really good success in resolving our claims before they get to the pretrial stage. But again, what's a pretrial? Well, it's a little bit similar to a mediation in the sense that it is somewhat non-binding, but it is actually with a judge. So this is where you would sit down with a judge, you would have similar advocacy around what the issues are, why you would maintain your position of total disability, for example, or other issues that might be uh, at play in the disability claim. And then you would have the judge actually comment to the parties around where they think the strengths and weaknesses are and really canvas again as to the possibility of resolution. And if not, what would a trial look like? How long would the trial be? How many witnesses would you need? And so on. And so I give, you know, our justices in this province a lot of due. The vast majority are very effective in encouraging parties again to try and broach resolution, even at a pretrial stage. So because of this, because there are so many steps and stages in a litigation, there are lots of good opportunities to resolve claims with insurers before we see the inside of a courtroom, which is why we don't get a lot of law that gets generated because very few disability claims actually get adjudicated in the eyes of the court, right, where there's rulings and determinations made, which is a good thing, I think. Always some great information, man. You want to reach out to Tamar, just have that discussion. Clears up so, gives you so much clarity. one 821 5900 is that number, help at disabilityrights.ca. I want to begin in on another email before we take a short break. Tamar, this one from Tully. Tully says, uh, Tamar, what options does someone have if their disability claim is denied, but they can't afford to hire a lawyer to fight back against the insurance company for compensation? Got to clear a couple things up here, I think, for, uh, pal. Absolutely, Tully. So so look, uh, you know, with our firm, there are zero upfront fees whatsoever. I mean, we get retained and we tell our clients right off the top, you don't pay us anything. In fact, you don't pay us anything at all unless we're actually successful in getting compensation for you from the insurance company. That is called a contingency fee arrangement. Uh, So our fees are paid on contingency meaning they're related to the rate of success. So if we are not successful, you pay us nothing. That's It's quite simple. And there's a really important reason for that, John. We've talked about it a little bit through the show, and that is the reality for most disability claimants is that they simply do not have that income support after they're cut off from LTD to actually pay for a lawyer. And there's a lot of fears and concerns around, look, how do I do this? You know, it's it's truly an access to justice. This is why contingency fee arrangements are are there and they exist in Ontario. There are sanctions, but, you know, they're, they're uh, given the green light by the law society. Everything is kosher. But for this exact reason, that if there's a concern around having to pay for a lawyer to do an effective job on a claim or a file in relation to disability, Tully, do not be concerned. This is the way that we work. And in fact, if you're approaching a lawyer and they're saying to you, you've got to give us a whack of a retainer and pay us mm-hmm. up front for us to start the, the legal claim, run for the hills, I would say, please, because that is not typical of a, a competent disability law firm, disability lawyers. The vast, vast majority of us work on contingency, which is why it's such an important way of doing it to allow individuals to move their claims forward not deal with the appeal process and let us do what we do best, which is to get effective, efficient resolutions for our clients. 
Yeah, I mean, they're coming to you and they're under financial stress. And you know, how can it makes sense? They're not going to possibly hear, oh, here's several thousand dollars tomorrow to start my case. That's the whole point. They're coming to you That's to right. resolve a case for compensation, right? So it just makes logical sense. But Tully, appreciate the email. We'll get to more of that in just a bit. Got Lauren standing by and more, but we'll take a short break before we get back into it. In the meantime, the number again, reach out to tomorrow, 1 855 821 5900. The email address we use there and we'll continue to is help at disabilityrights.ca. You want to go to justdisabilityrights.ca, firm website, drop down menu, media. You'll catch past episodes of both our radio show and our long running TV show as well. 30 minute, uh, 30 minute episodes there you can watch anytime you like. But we'll Continue after a short break. This is the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, welcome back, Disability Law Show indeed. Thanks for hanging on and sticking around. You want to reach uh, out anytime, not just during the show, any other time, feel free, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca as well. Tamar Agopian is doing the show every week and giving you a lot of knowledge, which you probably don't know about the whole insurance game dealing with a disability lawyer and the, you know, the, the, the fight between the two, but it doesn't have to be a fight. You just make that phone call, get some peace of mind and information, right? Lauren's uh, got an email for us. Tamar says, I am in uh, CBT rehab and my insurer is talking about sending me back to work. They're going to be sending me to a rehabilitation specialist. And their plan is to have me back to work in two months since they told me I've just been unable to function and gripped with fear. I'm trying to get a hold of my doctor, but haven't been able to see him. I'm supposed to attend their first session next week. Should I go anyway? Good question, Lauren. So for our listeners out there, Lauren's talking about a process that insurance companies often put in place when they have determined that, look, we think you're ready to get back to work and we're going to try and find every way to do that, unfortunately, or fortunately. And so what some insurers will do, and it sounds like that's what they're doing in Lauren's situation, is they will create a rehabilitation plan. So they will uh, assess your situation. They will assess the medical information that they have on hand and suggest to you, look, we think that with this treatment, be it two months, eight weeks, whatever, with a certain specialist or multiple specialists that this will get you on the right path but that by the end of it should allow you then to return back to work the challenge though is that oftentimes when this process is put in place it can be a little bit unexpected it sounds like it is forlorn uh, and i gotta wonder what type of medical information the insurance company actually has on hand so i give them a lot of credit to the starting point is actually to engage your own medical team. Make sure that you understand what's been communicated to the insurance company about where you're at from a health perspective. If your own treating practitioners are suggesting, look, give it a go. Yes, you could benefit from this treatment. Yes, there's a likelihood for a return to work on the horizon. Then by all means, I don't have much hesitation in Lorne going through this process. The tough part, though, is if there's a disconnect. And so generally speaking, the policy will say, look, if we insurance company think that you need this kind of treatment, if we think that by offering you rehabilitation support that you will get there, then yes, you are obligated, Lauren, to attend, unfortunately. If it's not going to cause harm to your health or your progress, 
then the insurance company is going to have an expectation that you attend and that you fully participate with their efforts to uh, do the therapy and the rehabilitation. Because guess what? If you don't, they will threaten to cut off your disability benefits, which is not a good thing, right? Um, the, the more important question in my mind for Lauren's situation is, look, what happens in that process? Is, is there harm, more harm being done than good? Is it likely really in that two-month time frame that he's going to be able to return back to work? And those are questions that he really does need to engage his own medical team about. Because I think it can be just as simple to have his own team, let's say it's his primary doctor, John, have your family doctor prepare a report, some kind of narrative report, a couple of paragraphs saying, look, I understand you've got him in this uh, CBT rehab. That's, by the way, cognitive behavior therapy rehabilitation. Um, I'm fine for him to per, you know, participate, but I'm keeping a close eye on how he's doing from his symptoms and so on. Mm -hmm. And my expectation is that he's not going to return in two months or we're, I'm going to reassess him in, in three weeks or four weeks halfway through the program and make my own decision as, a, as his treating doctor as to whether or not, in fact, he can return to work. Getting that kind of commentary will help to basically put the insurance company's expectations into the right framework. Uh, and in the absence of that, then, of course, if they don't have that medical information, John, they're just going to make their own assumptions. Like I said, you know, in our other segment in the show, they have doctors on, you know, on phone calls and emails. And so they will pay for a doctor to give them an opinion. And of course, if the doctor's being paid by the insurance company, you know that it's going to be a somewhat biased opinion. But nevertheless, they will look at the paperwork and they'll say, you know what, this guy's good. He's fine. Yeah, put him through the CBT rehab. And at the end of that, he should be able to work. I have seen that time and time again in claims files. And when there's an absence of medical information from your own treatment providers, that's the only conclusion the insurance company is going to make. Because guess what? That helps them. That's what they want to do is bring your disability claim to a close where they can get to a point where they can cut off the claim and stop paying you that benefit. That is how they make their profits. That is their model. Uh, and they will do that. And so if I'm Lorne, definitely try. And if you can't get your family doctor, get another practitioner, but certainly engage your own team. Let them know what's going on. Let them know if you're you know, being triggered in terms of exacerbation of symptoms and this sort of thing. But at the end of the day, right now, if he's sort of saying to me, my first appointment's next week, yeah, go to the first appointment, see how it goes, keep a close eye, and then make sure that you're getting in to see your own doctors in that time frame. Lauren, really hope that helped. And if you want to uh, reach out any further to Tamar and her crew, you can uh, you can do so indeed. Don't even hesitate uh, to do that and keep uh, keep reaching out for any more advice that you need anytime. Uh, you know the email address, of course, and I'll give it to everybody else as we're ready to wrap for another show. That would be help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number anytime as well. Always reach out. Like a simple conversation and a greeting and an initial meetup on the phone will cost you nothing, right? Tamar is always ready. She's got a great team behind her, one 821 5900 and that uh, free and anonymous resource for you to ask even more questions if they come to mind now that we're done, mydisabilityquestions.com. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. And that'll pretty much be a wrap for another show, my friend. Thank you, tomorrow, and thank you for all of your correspondence through email. Again, reach out anytime, and we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.
The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.